Coming up next is this month's special series, Focus on Men's Health, on ReachMD XM157. Who knows the most about the business side of your medical practice? Is it you? Is it your partner? Is it your business manager? Who should that person be? You're listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM157. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, your host, and joining me today is Judy Capco, founder of Capco & Company and author of the popular book, Secrets of the Best Run Practices. Judy has specialized in medical practice operations and marketing for more than 20 years. She is a certified risk management specialist, and her emphasis is on building patient-centered strategies and valuing staff's contribution. Judy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Larry. Well, whose job is it, Judy? Who should be keeping their finger on the pulse of the practice? Well, both of you should, the manager and the doctor. But in the end, it's your practice, and you're going to own the success or failure of the economics of your practice. So never, never relinquish that entirely to your manager. Your manager should be your ally in keeping a good handle on the business side of the practice. Right. Unless they are an owner, they're never going to care as much as you. True. Absolutely. So how much can I rely on my business manager to do? I mean, should that business manager be allowed to have access to credit cards, to the checking account, to all the financials, or just certain parts? Well, I wouldn't give a lot of freedom with using credit cards or things like that. I don't actually see a need for it. I see it happening in practices, and I often wonder why. I think it's important for you to make sure that they have access to the reports on your practice. How is your practice performing? Physicians that think if the manager knows what's going on, they're going to want more money, it's just craziness. It's like asking someone to manage your practice without having good knowledge of of how it's running in the first place. It's impossible. So they're hamstrung if they don't have access to the data. They can't know how you're performing and know where there are problems. Otherwise, it's just superficial and it's subjective, and we want to get our hands on some objective information. Judy, when you go out and do your thing, what kind of mistake do you see over and over that doctors are making when it comes to minding their own businesses? Well, I see three. And when it comes to the managers, it's either too little or too much trust. And then the third big one is just not looking at data. They need to be looking at data every single month. And managers tell me, good managers tell me, you know, I run these reports, I put them in the doctor's desk, and they just sit there gathering dust. Some of that's because it's just a lot of information, and doctors are very, very busy. And this information is silent sitting at the corner of your desk. It doesn't demand your attention, and therefore it gets ignored. You know, there are employed doctors, and then there are doctors that own their own practices, and there are doctors that care about money, and there are doctors that care about patients. So it's hard to make everybody so focused on the business bottom line when they're trying to not think like a businessman. It's like we're being asked to wear two hats, and we're not trained to do it, and we're not good at it, and we shouldn't be doing both. Well, that may be true, but even if you're an employed doctor, you're working for the money, right? Correct. So when it gets to the money, you still need to know what's the bottom line. And your contribution to a practice as an employed physician is very important to the bottom line because if you can't help that practice make money, then your ability to earn greater earnings and be more valuable economically to that employer is just the same in a way as it is if you own the practice. Certainly you don't have the bottom line responsibility, but in the end, you know, we're all paid on our performance, and Mm -hmm. that turns out to be dollars no matter how you turn it. What do you do when staff wants a raise and they don't deserve a raise and their performance is not so great, but yet they think they deserve a raise because, just because, because they know the practice is doing well? If they don't deserve a raise, my first question is, why are they still there? (laughs) 
That's a very important question to answer because if you don't think your employees deserve a raise, you know, they aren't a good enough employee to be in your office or you're not giving them the leadership to be the best they can be. So you better start communicating about performance and holding people accountable and knowing if someone's not cutting it and unloading them. Well, I got a follow-up question. Let's say they want a raise and they deserve a raise and you can't give them a raise. There's no more money coming in and there's more money going out and they expect the raise and they don't get it. They don't even understand why they can't get the raise. Well, they don't understand it because they haven't been educated about the practice finances. And, you know, I think that's a real tough question today. So we ask our staff, how can we generate more revenue? Get them involved. This is when you become a team and you say, you know what? I can't possibly afford a raise this year, but you deserve it, so I'm going to look at what the cost of living increase is, and I'm going to honor you by giving you something, but we need to change this for next year. So I need all of you to help me. You'll be amazed. They'll come up with ideas on how to save money, even if it means switching to fluorescent light bulbs. They'll mm-hmm. come up with ideas that can help you control costs. They'll look for ways to make sure that revenue doesn't fall through the cracks. They become part of your team, and you can reward them for that. Well, you said to still give them the raise, even though you can't afford to give them the raise. I mean, you know, in a medical practice, we have fixed expenses Mm -hmm. and we can't raise our prices. And each year our expenses go up and our reimbursement goes down. And if I give a raise to my staff, that means I'm making less money. Well, that may be out south to you, but here's my reasoning behind that. You tell them we're giving you more money, but we expect more of you. We're going to ask you to perform at a higher level. Because what's happening is we have so much inefficiency in the office, we end up adding staff. And if we can get people more efficient, we can reduce the number of hours from staff, which is also another option for you when the, when the revenue is tight. Instead of giving a raise, you give them a quasi-raise by saying, look, you know what? I'm going to give you an extra hour off each week or an extra hour off each day if you can get all your work done in seven hours. So in essence, they're getting a raise per hour, but they're not getting more money. And a lot of employees like that. What about if you're torn between a healthy Christmas bonus versus a raise? Do you pick one or the other, or do you do a lesser of both? Well, there's a lot of bias in that, and I am totally opposed to Christmas bonuses, so I'm probably not the right person to ask. No, I I like a strong opinion on this show, so go, so let it out. Well, I'm opposed to it because people start to think it's an entitlement. Right, right. And, it's, and every year it should be bigger. Right. And then they end up disappointed with something that you've actually given them as a gift. Correct. So you feel the same way, obviously, or you've experienced that. So I'm, I'm not a proponent of that. If you want to do something really nice from a Christmas time, you know, let them take a, a Friday afternoon off and let them alternate. You know, one Friday let Susie take it. The next Friday in December let Janice take it. Mm-hmm. And so everybody's got a half day off to go shopping. That's better than giving them the cash. And it doesn't hurt your wallet. And they see it as, you know, honoring their time. All right, let's get back to the business of the practice. What role does an accountant have in a doctor's practice in the year 2007 if everything's electronic and, you know, bank statements are electronic and you have QuickBooks? I mean, what is the accountant really there to do except prepare your taxes now? Well, that's about what they do. And I think that depends on your relationship with your accountant. And I, unfortunately, too often the physician thinks that this accountant is auditing your records and that, you know, you're being protected financially. Mm-hmm. And that's not their role. They're just putting some numbers to the pen. Uh, their role is certainly to help you look at tax advantages. I think you have to have an annual meeting with your accountant where you go over the things that are important to you and, and understand clearly what the accountant's role is. 
Now, some accountants around the country are practice management consultants, and they're on retainer to do practice management functions for the practice. That's another story altogether. But don't expect that your accountant is going to protect you from embezzlement, is going to know when the practice is headed for trouble, because by the time they figure it out, it's already too late. Judy, what are some of the telltale signs or the early clues that a practice is heading for danger? Well, there's all kinds of subjective things to look at within the practice. Can you sniff it out as soon as you walk into a practice, even before you crack open the books, what the biggest problem is going to be? Not necessarily what the biggest problem is, but I can sure see certain factors. Number one, if patients aren't getting the attention they need, if employees are bickering among themselves, if their morale is down, if paperwork is sitting on everybody's desk incomplete, if they're working overtime. Now, those are just subjective things before I ever look at any numbers. So those are the kind of things I look at, uh, and what's the relationship in the office among everybody that's there. Because if that's deteriorating, you've got big problems, and it's going to affect economics no matter what. Beyond that, I do I want to look at you know the production activity. What are our charges, our adjustments, our receipts? Are they the same month after month? Are there peaks and valleys, and why do those exist? Age receivables is a big dictator of what's going on in the practice. My benchmark basically is it's got to be under 20%, everything that's 90 days or over. I really shoot for a 15% mark, so somewhere between 15 and 20% is acceptable. If it's above that, you've got problems with collecting your money, so something's inefficient somewhere, something's going wrong. The other thing is your general overhead for both staffing and operating expense in general. So there are benchmarks, national benchmarks you should compare to, but as you well know, Larry, that's really a number that's quite high today. I think most practices can expect that their overhead's somewhere in the 60% range. Yeah, easily. It's it's very hard to... People are very expensive. Well, the staffing's your biggest expense. It would be a great business if it weren't for the patients Uh. and the staff. I like your humor. Uh, it's not true, <laughs> but it is a reality that that's very, very costly for us. Our staffing costs are up in the 20% range, depending on your specialty. So first you want to look at what's our full-time equivalent, and I'm surprised how few practices know that. You know, they have these people coming in and out of their office, and they don't add that up, and they don't factor in the overtime to find out what they're really using in full-time equivalent staffing per doctor. That's a very key number to know. And then, of course, the cost for managing our staff. It's amazing how many doctors just let go of all that. I was in a practice last week and sat down with the doctor at the end of my consultation and said, you know, did you know how much your office manager makes? Well, no, I don't. And I said, well, this is her salary. He said, well, I had no idea she made that much. I said, well, doesn't she get approval from you to give herself a raise? So, I mean, here you, here you have things like that going on. How can you? And then doctors are saying, you know, I can't make it. Well, if you don't manage it yourself, you can't expect it to be successful financially. It's just not going to happen. Judy, what kind of help is out there in terms of practice revenue, software programs? What do you like that kind of helps the doctor easily generate reports each month and kind of gives him a a daily snapshot of his practice? There's lots of information out there you can benchmark your practice against. And I think once you have the data in your system and you do your Excel spreadsheets, you can create all sorts of graphs. The key component here, though, is to use that comparison and to keep, you know, looking at the data as it changes each month. So, you know, if you have a rolling 12-month average you're looking at, you can see how that's shifting over time. Medical Group Management Association has a new report that I think is pretty cool. It's called the Dashboard. Mm -hmm. It's not inexpensive to buy their cost survey, but it is on a CD where you can actually just plug in, you know, about 
six to eight different numbers about your practice, and it'll pull up a dashboard report that you can look at and can tell you where you know where the problems lie. And then you can update that each month and keep a real pulse on your practice with very little time. I really believe that physicians, and I know this for a fact, actually, just from my own experience, that physicians can keep an eye on the economics of their practice in two hours a month. If they require certain reports be done by their manager and they sit down with the manager and review those reports, they will only spend a couple hours a month. The key to that, of course, is to make sure the data is accurate. So occasionally, I mean, it's easy enough for a poor manager to put in false numbers, so you do have to cross-reference occasionally. Mm -hmm. Just like Medicare comes in and audits your documentation, you have to audit the reports you're getting from your manager. It's just a matter of, of good business sense. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank Judy Capco for joining us today on The Business of Medicine. Thank you, Larry. This has been great. Judy Capco is the founder of Capco and Company and author of the popular book, Secrets of the Best Run Practices. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your questions and comments at ReachMD. We now feature on-demand podcasts of our entire library. Thanks for listening. Listen all month as ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals, presents a special series, Focus on Men's Health.